Our scripture this morning comes from Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out of the, in the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and I will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost and indeed we are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you up from your graves, O my people. I will bring you into the house, into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people." And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, and good morning. My name is Jeff Skipper. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer, and specifically the church planning apprentice, kind of overseeing a new work of planning a new church in our community. Uh, This morning, we are back to our Old Testament series. If you've been here in the last year, uh, even randomly or on a consistent basis, you know we've been going through that. If you just started coming in the last two weeks, you haven't seen that yet because we kind of took a short detour. uh, But this morning, we're back. And uh, currently, we're at one of, if not the most, low point of the story. Uh, And that point is exile. Uh, Just to catch you up, God has chosen a people to call his own, and he made a covenant with them. And that means he rescued them from the mess that they were in, and then he made promises to bless them, right? And then he fulfilled his word to them, and then he called for their love and obedience in return. And so now, even after God has come through on his end, his people have still gone on to break his covenant many times, and now they're suffering serious consequences because they've been unfaithful. So, I mean, the the most serious consequence is that they've been taken out of the land that God gave them by this pagan nation 
Just as God said would happen if they disobeyed him and they went after false gods. So that's kind of where we're at in the story. But the prophet we look at today, his name is Ezekiel. And Ezekiel came to tell them that God wasn't finished. Ezekiel spoke some really hard truths to the people, but ultimately uh, he had a message of hope. He said, even though you've been unfaithful and now you're captives in a foreign land, you're suffering just punishment for your wrongdoing, I'm going to make huge promises to you. But you see, the fulfillment of these promises, uh, they're bigger than they could ever imagine. Because the truth is, these promises are being fulfilled right now. uh, Specifically the ones that we just read from. And so, today, I want us to see that this is our story too. And I want to look at that in three points. So if you follow along in your worship folder, you'll see uh, we have the Valley of Dry Bones, the Life-Giving Spirit, and then finally, the Exceedingly Great Army. And so, I want us to look at our state apart from God what the Bible has to say about that, and then also what the Bible says is our only solution to that problem, and then the mission that we're saved for. And so first, the Valley of Dry Bones. Uh, The first thing I want to look at is the context of this passage. Again, Ezekiel was a prophet. He's, He's God's spokesman or mouthpiece during the last days of Judah. If you remember, in the north, uh, the the kingdom had divided. So we have the nation of Israel in the north, and we have Judah in the south. And Israel uh, suffered punishment for their unfaithfulness. They were conquered by the nation of Assyria in 722 B.C. And the the southern kingdom, Judah, lasted for about 130 to 140 more years. Uh, but, But their days were numbered as well. And so Babylon attacked this other nation. Uh, they, they took uh, many of the leading citizens into captivity and deported them. Um, and it was mainly leaders, and Ezekiel was one of them. And Ezekiel was a young man at this point. I read he was probably about 25 years old or so. Um, and he was uh, God's spokesman in the midst of this mess. And in effect, what he said was, trust in the Lord. He's going to restore you in a way that you can't even imagine. And our passage today, Ezekiel 37, is the third vision that Ezekiel has in this book. And it's easily the most well-known passage in this book. And so quickly, just in case you've never heard this uh, scripture, or maybe when we read it, you just kind of zoned out for a minute, I want to recap it, okay? I want to give a quick run-through, again, to see what's happening. And so uh, the passage starts with Ezekiel being brought out by the Lord uh, into this valley that's full of bones, and he tells us a couple things of what he sees. First of all, uh, if you see, he says there are very many bones. There's very many bones. And then he says they are very dry. And I found that interesting that he's emphasizing with the same word in Hebrew, he's emphasizing how intense and how lifeless this scene is. There's random scattered dry bones everywhere. And then God asks him this question in verse three. He says, can these bones live? So if I'm Ezekiel, I'm automatically thinking this is like a trick question. Because, I mean, it's a pile of dry bones. It seems like the answer is too obvious, so you're not sure what to say. Like in Sunday school, you just say Jesus, and you're right 99% of the time. You're just like, yeah, I don't Jesus, you know. Uh, I mean, he, he might have got it right. I don't know if he would said that. But he doesn't choose yes or no. In verse 3, I love his answer. He goes, ah, you know, Lord. What? You know, you know the answer to that. And it's really a humble answer. He's unsure because remember, he comes from a priestly family, so he knows the scriptures. In Deuteronomy 32, which was part of God's word that they even had at the time, it said that he's a God who makes alive. And so he probably knows that. So on one hand, he's thinking, well, actually, God could make these bones live. 
But at the same time, I think his faith may not have been to a point where he would say, yes, God, you can make these bones live because he's staring at a bunch of dry bones. I mean, that, that doesn't seem logical or possible. So I think he's really struggling with his faith. And then God tells him to go further. He says, okay, well, why don't you prophesy to these bones? That is, you tell them what I tell you to tell them. You be my mouthpiece. And that was the role of the prophet. So, I mean, put yourself in his position. How would you have felt talking to a bunch of dry bones? You probably would have looked over your shoulder a couple times, see if anybody was looking at you, right? I, I think acts of obedient faith will often look foolish to the world. I think Jesus had a lot to say about that. Uh, but we see Ezekiel obey. In verse 7, he's obey. And he says to the bones what God tells him to say. And I love the imagery here uh, and how descriptive the scriptures are. It says the bones begin to rattle together. And then they begin to connect together. And we see step by step what's happening here. It says they grow muscle and then they grow flesh and skin. But verse 8 says, but there was no breath in them. So now we, we don't have just random bones or piles of dry bones anymore. We have actual corpses laying here. Right? Actual bodies, not just bones, but they're not alive. So the Lord says, okay, go a step further. And in verse 9, he obeys again. And he calls out in faith for the breath of God to come into the dead bodies. And they come alive. And these bodies stand up. And the Hebrew word there is ruach. And it's used 10 times in 14 verses here. And in English, it's translated as wind or breath or spirit. So every time you see any of those words, it's actually the same word in Hebrew. Hebrew doesn't have a different word for that. The same thing with Greek, wind and spirit, the same word. And so this is God breathing life or his spirit into the dry bones. And it's actually, this is an echo of creation. Because if you remember in the creation accounts in Genesis 2, it says God formed man first. So you have the bodies laying there. And then it says he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and he came alive. So we see the exact same thing going on here. So what does all this mean? It's a metaphor, right? It's a metaphor. uh, It's an illustration. The dry bones in the valley represent God's people in exile away from the promised land. They're away from life as they knew it. Any hope that they had seems gone. Any future that they had or that they dreamed of is gone. They're taken away from God's presence. And the scripture is telling us this is like death. I mean, this story is doing all it can to show us that this situation is beyond bleak. They're not like bodies that look the same that just aren't alive. I mean, they're so far gone. They're like a bunch of very dry bones just laying there. That's how far gone they are. And the scripture is going to extremes to show us that. So what is this passage telling us? It's telling us that this is life. This is what life is like without the Lord. One pastor said that a world without God is a cemetery. A world without God is a cemetery. And that goes back to how do you define life? What do you put emphasis in? What do you invest in that you call life? The scripture tells us that That life without God is a cemetery, and it doesn't take much life experience or teaching or knowledge to see that we live in a world of very many, very dry bones. It doesn't take long to come to the realization that things don't work the way that we deep down feel that they should work. And so we quickly see a term that we could put on it is that this world is is fallen, 
right? I mean, the reason death and brokenness hurts us and makes us weep is because it clashes with our memory of Eden that I believe is woven into us. We know that it shouldn't be this way. I remember as a kid, uh, I was really young. I was riding in the back seat of the car, and we were coming. I still remember so vividly. We were coming over the overpass from, the, if you were here a few weeks ago, the dark place of Southwest, right? Eagle Lake. And my mom was driving. I was in the back seat, and I was just a kid asking her questions and stuff. And I remember at some point in the conversation, I came to the realization that one day she wouldn't be here or I wouldn't be here. And I remember I started crying. I remember I started weeping. No one taught me that, but there was something in me that just turned. And I remember thinking, that's not okay with me. Something's not right about that. And I was just a kid. And I believe that the reality of death clashed with my memory of Eden that is woven into us. J.R.R. Tolkien, he's an author. He famously wrote in one of his letters, he said, we all long for Eden Our whole nature is still soaked with the sense of exile. Our whole nature is is soaked with the sense of exile. And if you're not sure what Eden is, Eden was the garden where God created our first parents and they dwelled there with him and everything was perfect. And then they rebelled against him, they sinned against him and they were driven away from his presence and things quit working right. And so here we are. And so if you haven't yet, at some point, you'll see the dry bones of this world, that this, the, the pains of exile, the brokenness and deadness of this world, and then you'll start to see them everywhere. And the way we work, we usually see them in other people first. We're pretty good at that, right? Uh, he's got some things wrong with him, right? You see them in other people first, and then you see them on the news. I mean, things Brad just prayed about, you see them everywhere. But at some point, the reality that we live in a valley of dry bones will show up in some form on your own doorstep or even in your own mirror. And maybe you've experienced that. And then the dry bones of this world will no longer exist out there in our eyes. But we'll come to the sobering realization that, yes, this world is a valley of dry bones, but also I'm part of it. Have you reached that point? As for the world being off or broken or whatever term you want to put on there, whether you're a Christian or not, seems that everybody agrees that there's problems that exist in the world. That things don't work the way they should or they aren't as we feel they should be. Everybody seems to agree on that. But the disagreement comes in on identifying what the actual root problem is and how it can be fixed. And for the most part, the world's solution to the problem of how everything can be fixed is what is called humanism or secular humanism. Uh, One well-known singer-songwriter has a song that came out in the past few years. It was called Mercy. And And the song starts like this. The first few lines say, Don't give up. I know you can see all the world and the mess that we're making. He, he, he acknowledges there's problems that exist, right? All the world and the mess that we're making. You can't give up and hope God will intercede. Come on back. Imagine that we could get it together. That's what the lyrics to the song say. And those lyrics are reflective of much of the world's mindset. I mean, in 1933, this group gathered together and they wrote what's called the Humanist Manifesto. And there's been a couple more since then. The second one was in 1973 and they came out with another one in the 2000s sometimes. They're continually going back and editing it and changing it a little bit, right? Um, And they say things like this. This is word for word out of, of, uh, I I went and read it. The first one, or it was actually the second one, it said this. It said, no deity will save us. We must save ourselves. 
Now, the first one said, man has within himself the power for the achievement and realization of the world of his dreams. He has the power within himself. Humanism acknowledges, the world acknowledges that things aren't right, but it says that we have the power within ourselves to make everything right. And if we would just try really hard, and if we could all just get on the same page, we could do it. And therefore, there's no need for God at all. And if we're honest, I think a lot of times that's our default mode too. Pride. Self-reliance. I can fix this. We can do this on our own. But haven't we proven otherwise? Does history itself not prove that this is not true? I mean, for all of humanism's confidence in the ability of humanity, right? All of its optimism since 1933, things haven't really gotten any better. I mean, within 10 years of them writing that, they were already in the early to middle years of the Great Depression. And within 10 years, the most deadliest and worst war in the history of the world would happen in World War II. And confidence in humanity dropped to an all-time low. And the humanists got very quiet until 1973. They gave it time, let it breathe, and okay, let's try this one more time. The truth is, for all of our attempts to be really good and get it together... There's still just as many dry bones as there has ever been. Just as many as there has ever been. And at the, at the core, humans act the same way as they ever have, as they always have. It just looks a little different depending on the time and location you're in. The idols and the sins may change, but it's the same dry bones. We heard the, we've heard the line, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I think that's true of humanity. The book of Ecclesiastes has a lot to say about that. But Why? Is there something deeper going on that the world doesn't consider nor has the power to address? Is there something deeper? Uh, some of you have heard of TED Talks, right? Um, some people in here mentioned it to me and I started listening to them. They're like podcasts, they're like an hour, and some, they got like videos of them and stuff too on Netflix. And uh, it stands for Technology, Entertainment, and Design. And they talk about just random different ideas, and some of them are very interesting. And I listened to one a week or two ago, and it was called Why We Lie. I was like, huh, I'll listen to that, you know. And I jogged and walked and stuff in the gym, and I listened to Why We Lie. Now, I never heard them ask, do we lie? It was just assumed we all do it, right? I never heard them ask that. And, and they, they interviewed like behavior analysts and, and different people and others about why we do it. And, they, and, and their reasons were really ultimately what they got to is that they say, well, we use it to justify the decisions we want to make, to justify ourselves. We use it to further ourselves by being dishonest. And what really stuck out to me is they said this. They said, ultimately, it's just a human thing to do. It's just a human thing to do. But they never asked, well, we know that lying is a wrong thing to do. We all agree on that. Why is this wrong thing just a human thing to do? They never went deeper. Why is that the human thing to do? All signs pointed to the possibility that there may be a deeper problem beneath the surface, but they never went there. Beneath the surface. And this is what the world does. It only deals with the symptoms of the real issue. Right? It works with band-aids. The world just puts band-aids on things when there's an internal bleed. Or they work with anesthesia and they continually numb it, but they never go after the real problem. That's all the power the world has. Notice in our passage, it's, it's funny, God doesn't start with the outside symptoms. Here's what he doesn't say. Hey, Ezekiel, I've drawn up some covenant behavior curriculum, 
And I want you to take it down to the exiles and you take them through the lessons, you know, the behavior. And make sure you do the, uh, you know, behavior exercises at the end of each chapter. And you guys complete all that and you should be good to go. Good to go back to the promised land. You know, you'll walk straight and narrow. He doesn't do that. God says you're dead. You need a new heart. You need me to breathe new life into you. You need a new heart and a new spirit. Dry bones need a power, not a program. Dry bones need the breath of life, not behavior lessons. The world says, listen, the world says that the problems are out there and the solution is inside of us, but we know that's not truth. We know ourselves better than that, amen? I believe if we're honest, we, can, we could agree with that. The Bible says the problem's inside of us. It says we have a heart problem. And the heart in the Bible was the seat of the will and the, the, our desires and our emotions. And the Bible says they're off. Ever since that Eden thing and the rebellion I told you about, the exile, it says they're off and they're bent in towards ourselves. Our heart is. And, and we have a spirit that's hostile towards God and others. Now you may stop me right there and you say, hold up, that's a little bit, that, that language is a little too strong. I mean, I'm decent. I, I wouldn't say I'm hostile towards God and others. But the truth is we want to do life on our own, Right? And that manifests itself in many ways. Oftentimes, it manifests itself in looking like a very moral life. But the desire to live outside of our Creator's lordship and to call the shots ourselves is active rebellion against Him no matter how you spin it and no matter what it looks like. So the problem is inside of us, the Bible says. And the Bible says that the solution is a power that we need from outside of us, that we need to come inside of us and replace our hard hearts with hearts that are tender and responsive towards God and one another. To bring us back to life. To empower us with the ability to now obey God and to begin a process of remaking us into what God intended us to be. And it says that only God can do this. So my questions to you are, have you reached a point where you can't deny the dry bones around you and in you? Has sin and the results of it stared you so squarely in the face that you can't excuse it away or ignore it anymore? Have you reached a point where you confess that you can't fix yourself and you sure can't fix other people? The world has no power to give true life. It can't address the deeper issue. Jesus said in John 3, 6, my paraphrase, he says, dry bones give birth only to dry bones. Flesh begets flesh. The world can't solve that problem. You need something else, and this passage tells us what it is. So the Bible gives humanity the greatest insult. You're dead. You're really far gone. But you see, it also tells us the most amazing thing. It tells us that God loves us so much. Out of his own goodness, he wants to breathe into us again. Bring us to life, to live with him. And not only that, to bring us in on the story that he's telling and his mission and what he's doing in the world. And so uh, the obvious question is, how does that happen? Second point, the life-giving spirit. If you notice in our passage, one of the most pivotal moments is verse 11. If you look where the bones talk, and they make this great confession of their state and helplessness. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, here's what they say. They say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. They reach a point where they cry out to God. 
The first step towards healing, towards what the Bible calls salvation, is a desperation that results in a confession of repentance. That means uh, uh, turning from sin and self to God. And a spirit of helplessness. I mean, it sounds something as, like, like, as simple as, oh God, I'm hopeless without you. You're my only lifeline. Forgive me for looking everywhere else to bring me life. I end up dry every time I try to reap or bring life out of your created things. But I end up in the same spot every single time. I'm desperate and I'm tired and I'm sick of this. Help me. We have to lose hope and faith in ourselves before we can put our hope and faith in God. And that's true whether you're responding to God for the first time in your life or if you've been a Christian for a long time. It's the same movement. All of life is that same movement from self to God. But the question remains, will God respond to our plea when we do that? How do we know? If you notice uh, from the second half of chapter 36 through the first half of chapter 37, the Lord says the words, I will, about 25 times. I will, I mean, it's, just read it. And you're, I mean, it just jumps off the page about 25 times. Over and over again, he's stressing his responsibility in doing this work, and he seems to be guaranteeing it based not on anything the people do, but, but out of his own goodness. I will. And he says in 36.22, he says this, It's not for your sake that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. God wants to show his power and love. He says, then all shall know that I'm the Lord. What does that tell us? It tells us that salvation, that this new life given by God is, is by grace. You can't earn it. That's one of the hardest things for us. Do you know that? Humbling ourselves and doing nothing to earn but only receiving is so hard for prideful people. Do you struggle with that? Dry bones can't do anything but receive. So the prerequisite for salvation or growth in the Christian life is the same. It's a helplessness and a willingness to receive by faith with an open hand. Charles Spurgeon, he's a famous preacher of the past, now gone. He said, God helps those who cannot help themselves directly against what the world says, right? So yes, God will, will respond to our cry. He says, I will do it, but why? Why can we trust that God will hear us and answer us? If you turn, uh, or if you just want to listen, in John chapter 20, the Gospel of John 20, Jesus had been crucified, and he's now resurrected, and he appears to his disciples. And I want us to start reading in verse 19, chapter 20, verse 19. Uh, Here's what the scripture says, just uh, through verse 22. Here we go. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands in his side, right, where he had been crucified. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Okay, here's the kicker. And when he had said this, He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Does that remind you of anything? We we don't see anyone else in the Bible other than God going around and breathing on people. 
right? It's not a popular thing to do. Still today. Disciples might have been like, what are you doing right now? Only God. Who is this Jesus? That's the question, right? They knew what this meant. What a bold thing to do and say. Not only is he breathing on them, but he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Hold up. You have the power to do that? They're Jews. They know this passage. Jesus is saying, I'm the breath of life. I have the power to give you a new heart and spirit. Ezekiel's vision was about me giving life to you. And Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit into them and then he sends them out. God sent Jesus into this world, our valley of dry bones, in the flesh where we were in exile from God in order to save us. He lived a perfect life, the life that we didn't live, and was crucified on a cross. And on the cross, he took our exile upon himself, the death we deserve to die. Isaiah 53 prophesies about the Messiah, and it said he was cut off from the land of the living. That's the same covenant curse language that's used not only in the, in the law, but the dry bones use that. The dry bones said we are cut off. The Messiah was cut off from the land of the living. That's what's happening on the cross. He's taking our curse so that we could come home to the land of the living. The way to get a new heart and spirit is to, by faith, cling on to the one who went into the valley of dry bones to give his life in order to give you life. That's how you let him breathe into you. And the good news is that, is that if we believe in Jesus and put our faith and hope in him rather than ourselves or anything else, that we receive life and new, a new heart and God's spirit comes into us and begins a lifelong process of making us like Jesus. By faith and obedience, the spirit starts to make us into what we were meant to be. No longer an exiled people, but an Eden people. He's making us back into an Eden people. And listen, if you're anything like me, that's a long, slow, painful process. And it often looks like one step forward and two steps back. And that's why I cling to promises that say, that, that says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's a promise. You see, this promise we find here in Ezekiel is being fulfilled right now in all who put their faith in Jesus. Finally, the, the third point, when the dry bones are made corpses and the spirit comes into them and the bodies are given life and they stand up, Ezekiel shocks us with what he sees. He said, if you look in verse 10, he said, So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. I find that to be an intriguing description of any, everything he could have said. He says that's what he sees. I mean, first of all, that's a picture of Israel coming back from exile, engaging back into the mission that God gave them to be a light to the other nations. But ultimately, in the, in the scope of God's full story, his story to rescue people, we see this is the church. All of those who put their faith in Jesus. So let me ask you, if you're a Christian, do you think of yourself as part of an exceedingly great army? Have we lost that? And why? Ultimately, we could draw a lot of parallels between army and the church and apply them. 
But what this means at the core is that God breathes life into us and sends us into his mission. We saw that in John 20. He said, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. Let me give you the Spirit to go. In Acts, we see the same thing at the beginning of Acts. He pours out the Holy Spirit on them. He says, you receive power, and then you go. God breathes life into us, not to just make us alive so that we can wait until he comes back, but to empower us to engage in his mission now. And so as I wrap up, what will our lives look like as an exceedingly great army on God's rescue mission? How do we fit into it? And it's after the pattern of Jesus. As Jesus, our leader, went before us into the valley of death to save us, now empowered by God's spirit, we're called to go into the valleys of dry bones around us. Living the same pattern of life that Jesus lived, one of of sacrificial love and sharing the gospel. The last place our enemy wants us, the church, the ones who are pulsating with the breath of God in them, is around the dead. That's the last place he wants us to be. And that's exactly where God wants us to be. If you want to know, where will the Spirit lead me? If the Spirit's in me, where where will it lead me? Look at the life of Jesus. Look where it led him. It will lead us into situations full of dry bones so that we can love them to life. And listen, for some, that may be extreme situations or what we would automatically think of like the dry bones that are obviously desperate places like overseas our minds might run to or the most dangerous place at all where the brokenness can easily be seen. Absolutely, that may be the case for many of us. But maybe the Spirit has placed you in what you consider, you've come to consider the mundane, day-to-day, ordinary areas of life where you're like, it doesn't feel like I'm on mission for God and I'm part of this great army. Can anybody relate to that? Listen, that place too is saturated. Those places are saturated with the pains of exile and the dry bones of cynicism and hopelessness and being numb towards spiritual things are abundant. The idols are everywhere. They just look different. And so whatever it is for you, God has put you there. Whatever your place is, God's put you there to be the aroma, the aroma of Christ, the fragrance of life to the people there that God's calling to himself and to that particular place that God is reclaiming as his own. He's equipped you with his spirit and sent you there. Led by Jesus, we're an exceedingly great army. That is, as Brad mentioned, that's what Heart for Winter Haven is about. This new ministry that's being formed here. It's us to go out into enemy territory with the gospel and love the dry bones to life. To push back the kingdom of darkness where God's invisible kingdom already exists. To hear the hopeless cry and be the light of Christ in that darkness. Telling about what he's done, what he's doing, what he's going to do. That's what church planning is all about. Making the kingdom of God visible in the valleys of dry bones all around us. That's the church on mission. We are an army. I want to address some specific people finally at the end. Maybe you're thinking this, Jeff, that all sounds nice, but I'm a Christian and I feel weak and defeated and I feel much more like dry bones than a new creation full of life a lot of the time. And my response could be a lot of things. My response is go to war. We're in a battle. Ephesians says we are in a battle with spiritual forces. Do you believe that? Do you believe the word of God? We are in a battle that we can't see, and our enemy won't rest, and if he can't have us dead, he wants us to feel like we're dead. And he's the father of lies, and he must be fought with truth. And so quickly, remember who you are in Christ if you feel that way. 
Look to God's promises that are true. Every promise of God to you is yes in Jesus Christ. And drown out the the sound of the lies that are being whispered to your heart by loudly and constantly preaching the good news of the gospel to your heart. And finally, rest. You were saved by grace. Nothing can change that. Nothing. Not even your deceptive feelings can separate from you, you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I truly believe if you seek him, you will find him and that the wind of the Spirit will blow across your heart again and you will be refreshed by the Holy Spirit. The life that's already in you. We're an army, but remember this, the battle's already been won. D-Day has already occurred. It's just a matter of time till everything's made right again. And so our job is to go forward in faith and obedience in his power, not our own, because he's a God who says, I will do it. So call out to him if you don't know him for salvation. And if you're weary from relying on your own strength, Call out to him to breathe into you again because uh, he loves to do that. Will you pray with me? Father, we we thank you that you love us. Um, Your word tells us some heavy, heavy things, uh, especially as we have prideful hearts. um, And the last thing we want to hear is that we're we're dead. um, And you call our idols for what they are. You do call it like you see it, unlike the world, Father. And so I pray that we would run to you uh, as objectively we are dry bones. Your word says so. Uh, But also, we often feel like that. We're often left dry by everything else. Come and breathe into us again. Uh, If someone's here and not a Christian, I pray that you would breathe life into them and they would know you. Uh, For those who are Christians here and they're feeling weak and dry and tired, I pray that you would come uh, by your guarantee, by the blood of Jesus Christ, and breathe into us. And God, also, finally, empower us to go forward into our city and the nation, or in the, in the surrounding areas, and love these areas to life, even the places and the people we exist in and around now. Thank you that you will do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, in the book of Acts, after Jesus is resurrected and before he ascends, uh, he's there with his disciples, and they're in Jerusalem. And he says, I'm about to send you out on this mission. But he says, do not depart from Jerusalem until you have the power from on high, until I give you the Holy Spirit. Basically saying, you'd be crazy to engage in a mission that's one of life and death uh, without me being with you. And so the promise is to those who have their faith in Jesus Christ that he is with you and he will never leave you or forsake you. And so receive this benediction, this promise. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Go in his peace.